Okay. Welcome, everybody. I am excited to welcome you to this uh, episode of Cyber Traps. And this is our live episode, which is very exciting. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greeting, folks. I'm Frederick Lane. I am an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads, which will be part of our conversation uh, yes, this will. morning. <laughs> uh, Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and a bunch of other areas as well. So join us as we look into what it takes to better navigate an increasingly high-tech world. Good afternoon, Jethro. And good morning to you. Uh, I want to, uh, <laughs> as we get started, just share a little bit about uh, something that we've got going here on each podcast that we release. You can find it at cybertraps.com. And as you go there, you'll be able to play it straight from there. And then there's also a full transcript with it, little links, time codes, that if you click on the time code, it will take you to that point, to that point in the uh, podcast, right where those numbers are. So if you're listening to something, you want to go back and find it and get the text with it. This is a computer generated text, so it's not 100% perfect, but it's pretty good. And we want to just make sure that one, you know about that. And two, um, if you are not subscribed in your favorite podcast player, make sure that you do that because we've got some great, great interviews coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah, I'm really excited. When I look at the list of people that are lined up, Jethro, I'm, I'm actually really excited to, to talk to a bunch of them. So it'll be yeah, fun. It, it will be. And I'm excited for our topic today, which is sharenting which I'm, uh, I'm excited to uh, talk about, which is parents oversharing their kids on social media. And we've got so much to get through um, in our outline for this, uh, for this episode today. Um, I don't know if we're going to get to all of it, but I think it's a really important conversation um, for us to have you know, multiple times. So we'll probably come back to this topic again and again. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you on that, Jethro. I think that this is one of the things that we could do every two months, every three months, and still not cover everything. Because obviously, the whole aspect of parenting these days is dramatically different. Um, mm -hmm. There's just so much opportunity for parents to put their kids out into the world. And what we hope to do today is to raise some of the issues that parents should think about when they're deciding how much to share, whether to share at all, and so forth. I think the, the point here is not to make anyone feel bad about their choices, yeah. but to make sure that they have as much information as possible when they're deciding what to do. Yeah, and if, you, if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, that is almost never a good reason to do anything. So taking some time to be thoughtful about it and to make some uh, determined decisions about it, I think is a good place to go. So um, the, the reason why we thought we should bring this up is because of this Hilaria Baldwin controversy. And so why don't you give us a little background on that, Fred? 
Absolutely. And, and it's a little bit of a spinoff from the whole Hilaria Baldwin thing, which, of course, blew up on social media last week and basically boiled down to a Twitter person doing sort of a deep dive into Hilaria Baldwin's background and mm-hmm. the gist of it, to the extent that anybody really cares about that aspect right. of it, is that this Twitter person felt that Hilaria's um, promotion of her Spanish upbringing and an embrace of Spanish culture was somehow fraudulent because she's actually, uh, you know, a nice young woman from Eastern Massachusetts, which mm-hmm. coincidentally is roughly the same area I grew up in. And so, you know, basically this was raised as part of the overall conversation that people are having about cultural appropriation, right? People Mm -hmm. pretending to be African-American or Native American or whatever, and others saying, well, that's not legit unless you're actually from those cultures. So that's sort of the background for how this floated into my consciousness. But as I was researching it and trying to understand a little bit better what was going on, I took a look at Hilaria Baldwin's Instagram feed which is just wall-to-wall photos of the five kids that she's had with Alec Baldwin, right? Mm -hmm. And again, that's her choice. That's the choice she's made in terms of how she wants to share her family and, you know, really how she wants her kids to be viewed in the world. But what led to this specific show was that this was a topic that I had researched for Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads, because it seemed to me that as someone who looks at privacy and the implications for not just kids, but you know, for all of us, what does it mean to put that much of your children's image online? And what are some of the implications of that? So, you know, look, Hilaria Baldwin is hardly the only celebrity who does this, right? You could talk about Tamara Ecclestone. Uh, you could talk about Chrissy Teigen, uh, Elizabeth Hurley. Uh, you know, there's a whole pile of people who do this routinely. And it is important to note there's unfortunately a double standard about all of this in that it tends to be more the moms and they tend to get more blowback for it. So that's a whole nother show for us to talk about. But we do have a a goal here to talk about (laughs) what the implications are. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we're talking about um, celebrities here, which is a different animal than than each one of us individually. And so we'll talk about some some more examples in a little bit. But one of the things that I that I want to ask you about is one aspect for celebrities in particular is that they've had to deal with images being posted by other people for a long time. And paparazzi used to have to stand outside someplace and and stalk them basically to get pictures of them and their families. And I remember many years ago when uh, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes had a baby and it took forever for pictures to surface. And it was this big deal when somebody finally got a picture of whoever their baby was. And and now with, with many celebrities, they're just posting those pictures and uh, I don't know if paparazzi have been put out of business, but certainly to a certain extent that that voyeurism piece isn't really there anymore because yeah. they're posting it themselves, right? So yeah, is, right. is there a benefit to them owning their story instead of um, having the paparazzi share these things they don't want to have shared anyway? 
Sure. And, I, and I, I'd love for us to schedule a whole show on celebrity yeah. culture and its <laughs> impact on children and families. But uh, the answer I would have is twofold. Number one, Jethro, you're absolutely right. I mean, you can just read the Daily Mail or the New York Post or the New York Daily News or any of the broadsheets, the Sun, any of these papers to know that the the paparazzi are still whining and dining off the photographs they take. I mean, there must be a whole host of them camped out in St. Bart's, for instance, looking for celebrities who are getting out of lockdown from the UK. But then the question I would have following up on your point is, whose story is being owned, right? So you're talking about the celebrities, quote unquote, owning their story. But the point we're going to lead into directly I think, is whether or not the children have a right to their story and who gets to tell that story. That yeah. I think is really the core thing today. Well, and that, that brings up the point of, you know, when does a child's decisions start to impact their life and when do the parents' decisions stop impacting their life? So there are certainly some legal issues around um, posting children's photos. And so I don't believe that kids have a legal right to prevent parents from doing it. Right. And so it's basically parents can post whatever they want of their kids because they're under 18. It's their parents' choice. Is that a, a fair way to look at that? That's, that's certainly a correct analysis of the law in the United States. Yeah, we can get into some of the stuff, you know, hopefully we will have some listeners beyond the borders of the US and, and the laws do get different when you get to the EU or the UK or what have you. Um, in the United States, of course, we have a First Amendment, first and foremost. And so there's a lot of free speech rights that go into all of this. Secondly, children are considered to have a smaller bundle of legal rights under the age of 18 which is, of course, one of the reasons that these social media websites, um, you know, discourage kids from joining until they're 13. Uh, it's one of the reasons you can't buy drugs, alcohol, uh, cigarettes. You can't rent a car until you're an adult and you can actually legally sign a contract. But I guess I would push back just a little bit on this one, though, Jethro, because to me, the, the, the issue, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, the issue is not just the legal right to post these photos. It's the question of whether or not it's, it's ethical to do even when the child can't consent, or maybe especially when the child can't consent. Yeah, and, and to me, that's an area where, um, you know, especially with like newborn babies, for example, that is an area where you want to, to show off. And as kids get older, you want to show off the things that they're doing. And so is it right to be sharing pictures of your kids with people that, you know, they have no idea who they are and they will never meet them? <laughs> well, you know, this is where we can look at Mark Zuckerberg, right? And just kind of say, you screwed up the word friend. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. As we are streaming this live on Facebook right now. Well, ironically. look, there are issues of irony lurking in all of this. And, yeah. and I think it's, it's fair to, and I have been as we've prepped for this show, I've been reflecting on you know, my experience as a parent with four boys. And again, they were so much older by the time that social media rolled around 
that we had a very different problem set altogether than I think parents who have kids uh, kind of uh, starting out right now. So that's duly noted. Um, we did have the fourth of our four boys is directly relevant to this conversation. We can talk about that. Um, but before we drift too far from the law, there's a couple of other points I think that are worth making. Number one, um, it, the, the scenario changes a little bit if the posting is done by someone other than the parent. So, you know, parents have a, a legal right slash obligation to protect their children. And if they think that, or if they object to a photo of their child being posted, then they may have some legal recourse. Again, it's stronger in the European Union. For instance, just earlier, uh, not this year, <laughs> this year is very new. Last year in 2020, um, a, a grandmother in, in the Netherlands was required to take down photos of her grandchildren from Facebook because the parents didn't want them up there. And it was seen as a violation both of the parental rights and the children's right to privacy in the EU. I'm not entirely certain that would work here in the US. I'd have to look into a little bit more to see if it's popped up. But then you might have to rely on things like um, invasion of privacy, depending on your state law, or intentional infliction of emotional distress. Well, and the other aspect of that becomes uh, an area where I'm familiar with schools posting pictures of students and right. parents um, can object to that. And there are uh, there are situations where uh, school districts have um, taken a very strong stand on not posting any student pictures. And many school districts now have uh, policies in place where in the past you had to um, opt in to have images shared. And now you have to opt out of having images shared, which I think is a whole nother track we could go down and talk about um, whether or not that's wise or, or worthwhile for schools to have those policies in place. But um, in many districts, that is, that's a very real issue that um, a lot of people are just not paying attention to. Well, we'll have to make a note because I did talk about this in Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0. We should do a show on technology and FERPA specifically yeah, for schools, because, for sure. you know, one of the things that that can pop up in these situations is, you know, if a teacher is taking photos of a classroom, relatively benign, but there's personally identifying information in that photo, and they don't realize it, you know, that's potentially a problem for the school, the principal, what have you. Yeah. And then whether or not you're posting that on your personal or school account, is another thing. So we'll, we'll get into that, but let's talk more specifically about, <laughs> about here, some of the practical risks related to, um, to posting over or oversharing uh, pictures of your kids on social media. Right. And, and this is actually a great segue from the legal aspect, because I was going to mention that in the state of New York, for historical reasons, we don't need to get, we don't need to get into um, the state of New York does not have a right of privacy per se, um, it, according to a decision going back more than a century. But what the legislature does do or did do is to adopt a law that basically says that you cannot misappropriate someone's image for commercial purposes. And this is actually directly relevant to parents because 
one of the things that I discovered in Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads is that there were a number of scary instances in which people were surfing social media, looking for images of kids that they could then use commercially. And, you know, the, the kind of most horrifying story was a woman who was traveling, I think, in Germany um, and discovered or saw a photo of her child who had had Down syndrome being used in a medical advertising campaign, um, basically for genetic testing during pregnancy. It was wow. an absolutely horrible wow. abuse of that child's <laughs> that rights. Crazy. Well, yeah. right. That's, yeah. And so the, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that specific case up because um, I, you know, early on in my kids' lives, I posted lots of videos of them on Facebook or Facebook and YouTube and things like that and have, um, have done that limitedly uh, in the past few years. Um, but one of my videos ended up going viral and has over 15 million views on it. What? Yeah, it's That's crazy, insane. right? <laughs> and and here's the thing, Fred, that is just crazy. The way that I found out about it is yeah. that I would get emails saying somebody left a comment on your YouTube video. And the emails that I got were awful, horrible things that were said about my daughter with Down syndrome because she was in the video that went viral. And it's just ridiculous how, um, how people were saying such horrible things. Mm not knowing her, not knowing anything about our family or anything like that. And those, that's a, that's a very practical thing that I felt when I saw that. So I turned comments off on my YouTube videos um, pretty short, shortly after that, once I realized what was happening. And yeah. on the one hand, like, that's cool that she went viral, but then why, what benefit does that give her or me or anybody? It doesn't, there's, there's nothing beneficial that came from that. Not even like, ad insertion where I could, you know, make a ton of money off of those 15 million views that never happened. And so it's, it's really, um, there's no well, benefit to it. Um, other than more, more people can see that she is a happy kid and that's great. But, but I don't think that's the message people were taking away from that. It, yeah, God, that there's so many aspects to that story, Jethro, honestly, to, to play around with. Um, sorry about the advertising views missed, though. That would have been a real game yeah. changer. <laughs> um, yeah. No, seriously, I, I think that's just such a, an honest and practical anecdote to share with people. And, and I think it's appreciated because, you know, look, I was realizing when I was thinking through this that, that at its core, what we're talking about today is privacy, right? Privacy, as I defined it in, in an earlier book, is, is the ability to control the use and reuse of your information. It's, it's a, it's a, I, I realized it's a, a measurement. It's not a thing. <laughs> so it's a measurement of how much control you have. And I think the, the lesson that you're illustrating and we should all reflect on is that when we put these pieces of information about our children out in the world, we lose control over how they're used because social media is inherently incapable of providing us that control. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing about this video is that other people have um, taken this video and put it on their YouTube pages, taken the title, the name, everything, and and just put it out there. And so now I have to worry about other people 
taking my daughter's image and using it for their own thing, whatever that could be, or putting it into videos that um, there was one that I did a copyright claim on and asked to take it down. And it looks like they did because I can't find it anymore. But they they spliced her in with other videos and nothing malicious or, or wrong, just adding her in with other things that I didn't really want her to be a part of. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, just just as a throw out, you would have done that under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It would be a DMCA takedown notice. And you know, if you're dealing with a vaguely reputable website, they'll actually honor that. If you're not, then you're kind of screwed. And and this is one of the problems with putting this material out there. You know, I get parents and teachers coming up to me all the time saying, "Well, if somebody has posted a photo of me or my kids that I don't want up there." What do I do about it? And honestly, what you're really doing is you're asking them to be a decent person and take it down. And then if they won't, it gets much more complicated. But the the piece of that story you just told, again, is a nice segue into the next topic that we would cover, which I had never even heard of before I, I started working on expecting moms and dads. And that's the idea of digital kidnapping. And in short, (laughs) yeah, in short, what that boils down to are people who collect photos of a particular child and then basically pretend that that is their child. And they create an entire online universe in which they are the parent of that child. And in some cases, it's it's sort of uh, it's like a game that young girls will play kind of pretending to be a mom thinking through some of these issues about, you know, momhood and all the rest of that. In other cases, it's mentally disturbed people who just get caught up in some kind of fantasy. And then, you know, obviously there's concerns about more salacious purposes as well, but, but the, the more material that you put out into the world of your children, the more fodder you provide for someone to do that. And I'm not saying that every single person will have this happen, but even one is going to feel really bad. Well, and even one to you, like you may not think anything of it, hearing about us talking about it right now, just like, oh, I hope that never happens to me. But the reality is, is that as soon as it happens to you, it's going to change your worldview in a heartbeat. Because one of the things you also talk about a lot is this idea that we're not talking about everybody doing all these bad things we're talking about a very small slice of the population um and and that's really what this is is a very small group but when you start to see other things when those things happen to you then it's different and takes on a different meaning um the other thing i wanted to talk about is the impact on children of Mm. the psychological cost of like um external gratification and then also their their body image issues that could come from it. What are your thoughts on those two topics? Well, I think those are really great topics to raise, Jethro, because, you know, it seems to me, and and this is probably more of an issue for slightly older kids, right? But if, if, if part of your use of social media is the posting of photos of your children, one of the natural things they will start to do very early, because this is the way the system is designed, is to look at how many people like what it is that got posted. And they will learn through that, that some images get more likes than others. And 
again, we can have an entire show about the the socialization of children that results from that. You know, and again, it will tie nicely into celebrity culture, right? Because that's part of the role modeling that they're seeing. So this, from a psychological perspective, gets very complicated. But at root, it's relatively simple that what we're doing is very Pavlovian. We're, we're, we're teaching children to respond to more likes, more favorites, more shares, all the rest of the stuff that is designed to drive engagement in these social media services. And there is a lot of growing concern that that warps the way children look at themselves and look at others. And there's actually a great word that's associated with this, which is dysmorphia, which is the sense of being dissatisfied with how we look. And you know, look, aging drives that point right. home, <laughs> right? But it's, 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 and, and yes, we can complain about joints and what have you, but I think the issue is that if you're a child and you've got media and social media telling you that you are not the right weight, height, color, uh, whatever, hair color, you name it, then it's going to it's going to be a psychological drag on your development and social media accelerates all of this. So from a parenting perspective, if you are actively contributing to that process, it seems like something that it is really worth thinking about. Like, is that, are those the lessons that I want my child to take away from social media? Um, you know, and, and, you can get very deep about this. You can talk about, you know, Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning in terms of how do we find value in the world, et cetera. Look, you and I, right, we're doing this podcast to some degree. How many people show up and like it and listen to it is relevant to how we feel about it. Um, what someone like Viktor Frankl would say is if this broadcast has meaning in and of itself, that's sufficient. And, and it's a hard thing to deal with with kids because they're so immersed in all of this. But it, it, it seems to me that it, it's a little bit like climate change or erosion. It's one of those slow psychological changes that's problematic. And we should think about whether or not we can interrupt that process. And, and not just that, but also think about how we can use it to um use it to like propel our children forward in a positive way you know so like in 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 the first episode the first interview we did with tessa stuckey on this podcast cyber traps we we talked about uh the dangers of giving kids phones early on the danger of exposing them to social media early on and and you can see it and as a school principal i saw that all mm. the time and I mean, we could talk for hours again about all the things that where troubles arose. But what I will say is this, nearly every single discipline issue that I dealt with as a principal over the last probably four years, I would say, had some, some little tentacle reaching out to social media in one way or another. And, and what has happened is that all these issues came from things that were happening outside of school now become part of school because of social media and interactions and kids doing that at school and doing it at home. And, you know, those lines just get blurred. And so 
Um, so I think that's a, an important thing to think about as well. And we'll probably come back and do a show about that in the future. I mean, there's just so much stuff for us to talk about, Fred. This is great <laughs> and awful at the same time. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I feel blessed to have stumbled upon slash created this theme to mm-hmm. organize our conversations. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, another part of my world is is computer forensics. And mm-hmm. one of the things I saw probably 15 years ago was that, you know, every single, almost every single law enforcement uh, incident had a computer slash technology element. It could be two guys pounding the dust out of each other in a bar, and then you discover that they were fighting on social media before they even showed up. So I agree with you. I absolutely think we should do something because one of the most common problems, and there's actually a Supreme Court case about this, so we'll have the perfect hook for that. But one of the most common problems is how should a school respond to something that occurs on social media? after hours, but then has an impact on the school day. And how much impact does it have to have? You must have grappled with this all the time. Yeah, every single day, because that's really what we, that is the majority of what we dealt with was things that happened outside of school that were brought in. And in our trainings from uh, the council for the school district, they would say, if it impacts school, then it's fair game for you to deal with. And Mm -hmm. even if it happened outside of school, and I just hated that because it took me away from, from the work I really wanted to be doing, but it, it was, was actually it was, in school. <laughs> right. So, so let's, before we give some suggestions for ways to do this better, let's talk last about some ethical considerations around role modeling and lack of respect and yeah. formation of identity, things like that. So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. And then this might be the, I mean, this might be the thread that we pull out for more detail future on, uh, you know, later on in terms of socialization of children and, and celebrity culture and so forth. But, you know, we can loosely bundle this, I think, under the concept of, of cyber ethics, right? There's, there's a lot of different aspects to this. Um, we talked a little bit about role modeling earlier, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how does the child feel if images of them are being posted without their consent? Obviously, if they're infants or toddlers, um, they they don't really get it. Although, to be fair, the average age of device use now is below 10 months. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think they're, <laughs> they're going to be more aware than we know, especially yeah. if we're on the social media all the time as well. Exactly right. And, and we'll be showing pictures that we see and, oh, here's grandma doing X and blah, blah, blah. So they absorb that like they absorb water. It's It's so easy for them to get it. But the consent issue is a little bit trickier because what does it mean if a two-year-old says, sure, post my photo, right? Do they really understand the implications of that? And, and this is really, I think, what drives a lot of this conversation. Parents should have more knowledge and wisdom than their children about what can happen and be more thoughtful about doing it. Um, certainly as the kids, and this was the experience we had with our youngest boy, as the kids hit middle school, they're going to start to have very firm opinions about what can and can't be posted, which is great. Um, actually, uh, our youngest was very, very strict about what he would allow to go onto social media mm-hmm. with him in it. Yeah, same with um, with my son right now. He's 
you know, we were, we were doing a family activity on Saturday just last week and I was taking pictures to save. And he's like, no, I don't want my picture taken. And I'm like, too bad. I'm taking your picture because I'm going to document this family activity, but I'm not going to post it anywhere. Nobody's going to see it besides our family, but it's, I want to cherish this moment and save it for the future. And it was just really an, an interesting thing because that has been a relatively recent thing that he just doesn't yeah. want those things out there. And he'll probably and that, be mad at me that I shared that story. <laughs> well, Dang it. And I've had some interesting conversations with Amy about story boundaries. So I understand. <laughs> I, I understand that. Um, look, I, I think that's a great conversation to have had and, and good for you for honoring his wish vis-a-vis social media. That's, that's terrific. Um, I think that we can just toss out a couple of other points that are worth parents thinking about. Some of the most horrifying stories, honestly, Jethro, are the ones where parents use social media to shame or to discipline their child. And I wasn't going to get into it because it's just such idiocy, but you probably heard about Bean Guy, you know, over the past couple of days. I didn't Did hear that cross that, your radar. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm clearly proving that I spend too much time on Twitter. So sorry. <laughs> um, but the point being that this guy who's now deleted his entire Twitter account wrote a long thread about how his daughter came to him with a can of beans and wanted lunch. And he forced her to try to figure out how to use an old fashioned can opener and then talked at great length about how she couldn't figure it out. And they didn't eat for six hours because she wasn't quick enough to understand what was going on. And he did it in a very smirky, self-satisfied, I'm a great parent because I'm teaching process and I'm teaching innovative thinking. And yet you've got this nine-year-old girl who's hungry for hours presumably not starving, but still uncomfortable. It was just mean, you know, yeah. at, at its core. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and for me, the things that I've seen are putting kids who are fighting in a shirt and then taking a picture of it or oh. and posting that and, and things like that. I mean, that kind of stuff, anything that, that shames kids or puts them down because um, especially sharing that on social media, to me, it just, it has always just given me a bad taste in my mouth and I just cannot stand that. I hear you. Well, two other quick points and then we need to get to some practical considerations. Number one, you know, what really motivated me to explore this in some detail was the concept of the formation of identity. Whose identity is it anyway? And one of the things you see with parents who post a lot on social media is that whether they realize it or not, they're effectively curating their child's identity. So for instance, if their child is a bit of a bookworm, their posts will reinforce that. If the child's a little bit goofy, they'll choose those images. And whether they think it through or not, they're really forcing the child into a particular mold, which the child may not want to embrace when they get older. And that's a little unfair to the kid. Well, and when when the likes are coming because of those posts and and other things, then then it's not just the parent who's forming the right. identity, but it's the followers of the parent who are helping form that identity because 
everybody laughs when that picture goes up or everybody likes it and and responds and comments and so the parent naturally is going to want to post more pictures like that even though they may they may not see what they're doing that's a really good point. And I, I don't think I actually took it that extra step that, you know, there's a molding of the parents as well as the kids at the same time. And then the last thing, and, and this is probably a separate show all by itself, but this, the rise in the child influencer, you know, the toy unboxer, the Minecraft kids, the, the Lego builders, all the rest of that, um, it, it just raises some really challenging issues about, um, you know, what economic role the child has in the family, um, whose money is it anyway, um, how, how is the kid being co-opted or manipulated to be an influencer? And again, this loops us back to the celebrities, right? Because in a way, the very profession of being a celebrity requires this kind of thing. It's very complicated stuff. It, it is. And so I'm, I'm thinking about some of the circles that I'm involved in um, uh, because of my life experience, like my daughter with Down syndrome and being aware of these other people who have kids with Down syndrome and, you know, have these mm. uh, Instagram accounts that have tons of followers and, and all this stuff. And, and it's making me really think about that and, and, you know, how that is beneficial to them in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen mm -hmm. really positive things come from it. People who felt like there was no hope because they just found out their child had Down syndrome and not mm -hmm. knowing what that entails. And then seeing an Instagram account of a family with child with Down syndrome and how that can, you know, they, they can find happiness and the kid mm -hmm. can lead a normal life. Cause a lot of those things you just don't know about if you haven't been exposed to it. Um, and that goes with every other disability out there um yeah you know yeah. kids with um with multi families with multiracial um uh parents or with adopted kids things like that there are positive things out there um and so we you just have to think about these things as you're do as you're going through it and making those those decisions so i i think the big thing we want people to take away is you need to think about it as the parent and think about what you're doing and I don't know that there is a right answer or this is the only way to do it. So we're going to give some alternatives and ways to prevent um, sharing and oversharing what you're doing. So, uh, so let's talk about those. And the first one is uh, to really think about who your online friends are and who can see what you're creating and mm -hmm. whether or not your account is private and recognize that anything you post on the internet can eventually be seen by someone. So it's not like you can, you can get away from it. And once you post it, it's out there. So think about that first and foremost, but then think about how public your profile is, review your privacy settings and make sure you're paying attention to that. So that if you are posting, you have a better idea of who is seeing what you're posting and how that is, is going about. Yeah. And I think it's fair to give, um, you know, to give Facebook a little bit of love, <laughs> just a tiny, tiny bit of love here in the sense that um, over the years, they've developed some really good um, privacy forward measures in terms of um, subgroups within your Facebook feed. You really can limit who sees certain posts pretty effectively. And that's very different, for instance, uh, from something like Twitter, you know, where that's virtually impossible. You know, so you need to really, if you're going to share things 
um, online, you, you do have a responsibility to know how the system or the social media site works and then make your decision based on that. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good um, point to make that different social media outlets ha have that different type of privacy built in. Even if you're private on Instagram or on Twitter, um, you people you know, they can request to follow you and you can filter out that way, but that's pretty much your only mechanism. And you're right about Facebook offering multiple layers that you can make close friends and, and family and different things like that, which I think is good. And you can limit who sees what. Right. And, but the, <laughs> let's be clear. <laughs> um, it is, you know, the information wants to be free. And the, the reality that you have to understand is that if somebody, even someone you trust, who's a family member, either right clicks on the image or uses something like Snagit or, or the snipping tool in Windows 10 and makes a copy of that image, there is nothing you can do to prevent that from happening. The only information that can't be shared is the information you don't put online. Yeah, and, and that's really important because anything that you're going to share can then be shared again. So let's, let's not forget that. Um, another uh, suggestion is to put your family photos in a password protected folder in a cloud storage or online photo service. And there are so many different ways to do this, mm -hmm. but the, I would, one thing that my family did is we, when we moved to Alaska, it was a big deal because we were so far away from everybody. We created a shared photo album called Alaska, and we just put a bunch of photos in there every mm. couple of weeks or something so that people could see what we were up to, but that we weren't putting all over social media. Great idea. So, and I next, think you've got to, yeah, go. <laughs> I have props today. So these are, um, you know, I think uh, chat books would be great to sponsor the podcast. So if you're listening, chat books, you know, contact me and we'll, we'll or Snapfish or yeah, any one of those. So, so my wife, this is volume sixty-seven and sixty-eight of um of our pictures that my wife posts on instagram now she is private on instagram so not a, just anybody can follow her and this is we send these physical books to uh our grandparents who do not have social media so that they can see what's going wow. on and That's so they, <laughs> they get these in the mail every 60 posts they come automatically and this is you know just what what it looks like and this is what they get so really fantastic um great way to do it the other thing that my wife does is she makes uh these books you know she's been a big scrapbooker for many years and yeah. she um uses an app called project life to document and make little layouts and things like that so that oh, that's um, brilliant yeah so that we can have that and these this is not stuff that we post online these are things that my wife makes these books so this was just for the first half of 2020 because my wife is amazing at doing this and um and this is much better than a 12 by 12 scrapbook <laughs> to be i'm sure. actually vaguely amazed that you want to document 2020 but good for you <laughs> well you know and and here's the thing for us 2020 was a great year i mean uh, i know the pandemic good. was tough for a lot of people but we are just super blessed and it was it was amazing so uh, way better than 2019, which we can talk about again <laughs> at another time. <laughs> but, well, that's 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 terrific. I look forward to learning more about those. Last suggestion for people, um, maybe a little bit challenging for the tech impaired grandparents and so forth, mm -hmm. but you know, USB sticks are a dime a dozen these days. You can get yeah. 
one, two, five, 10 megabyte sticks for pennies. Easiest thing in the world is to fill one up with photos of your family, send them off to family members, um, just tell them not to repost or post the material. <laughs> yeah, I got a USB stick from my grandson and uh, I'm just going to put it all on Facebook. <laughs> Wait, grandma, that's not what I wanted you to do. <laughs> right. These are the conversations you need to have. But hopefully people will get some good ideas on alternatives to social media because, you know, social media is just the grand bazaar of, you know, interaction. And sometimes... Um, particularly when we're dealing with kids, we need things to be a little bit more focused and contained. Yeah, great advice. Um, this is this is a great conversation. Definitely um, something people need to think about. If you have more questions or thoughts or concerns about this, leave a comment um, uh, on the website, cybertraps.com. And uh, if you're listening to this, uh, please share this episode with your friends. Make sure people know about it. And we really appreciate um, you listening to the Cybertraps podcast. Well, fantastic, Jethro. That wraps up this episode, our live episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the ongoing challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we will continue our conversations with a growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share this with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this. So please leave us a rating, five-star review. That would be great. We would appreciate it. And we appreciate having you in our ops on our audience. And we look forward to seeing you in our next episode, which this week is with Dr. Glenn Lipson, which is a fantastic conversation, continuing all these cyber traps issues and really a good one. So look for that coming out on Thursday.